Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. We're now more than a month into the war in Ukraine, and the Western world's coming to the disturbing realisation that this conflict could be with us for months, maybe even years. If that's the case, the implications for world politics and economics will be very profound. All sorts of new possibilities need to be considered about the place of Russia in the world, the future of Europe, of the Western alliance and of globalisation. To think through some of these implications, I'm joined this week by one of Europe's most interesting thinkers on geopolitics, Alexander Stubb, a former Prime Minister of Finland who's currently a professor at the European University Institute in Florence. So, how will the war in Ukraine remake the world? For many of Russia's immediate neighbours, the war in Ukraine stirs fears about the future and bad memories of the past. Finland shares a land border of over a thousand kilometres with Russia. Its modern history has been shaped by the Winter War of 1939-40, when the Soviet Union invaded Finland. The statement of Yalmar Prokope, Finland's minister in America at the time of the invasion, will sound very familiar to Ukrainians. Russia has attacked Finland. This is not a war, but the most ruthless aggression upon a peace-loving, hard-working and deeply religious people. Finland never threatened Russia. Finland accepted with deep gratitude the offer of conciliation put forward by the government of the United States. The Finnish nation is firm and united in the defense of her liberty and of her democratic institutions. Moscow's justification for invading Finland in 1939 and its demands also have a familiar ring to them. The Kremlin cited the Soviet Union's security needs and it demanded the secession of territory. But, as with Ukraine today, the invading army performed unexpectedly badly and the Finns fought with great bravery. Here's a Pathé newsreel of the time. On the southern battlefield of the Karelian Isthmus, the Finns are entrenched in their Mannerheim line and all the might of Russian tanks and artillery can't break through. But it's hardest of all to keep warm. In the far north of Petsamo on the Arctic Ocean, the ghost army in the mist. They're driving Russia back. They've got the enemy on the run. Today, in the light of the war in Ukraine, Finland's once again having to think hard about how to protect itself from Russia. Alexander Stubb is somebody who thinks a lot about the future of Europe and international relations. He's often mentioned as a possible future president of the European Commission. But before we got on to the global implications of the Ukraine war, I wanted to ask him about the specifically Finnish perspective. Even in London or Paris, the war feels uncomfortably close. So what's the mood in Finland with a war like Russia just across the border? 
You know, a lot of people are driven at the moment by rational fear. You know, we had our experience in World War II with the Winter War and War of Continuation. We had a very difficult time compromising our democracy during the Cold War with 1,340 kilometers of border with Russia or the Soviet Union at the time. And we hoped that we would see the end of history and the integration of Russia into the Western world and into the international community. But it didn't happen. And we didn't see that in Georgia 2008, Crimea 2014, and now there's a full-scale war. So Finns are driven by rational fear. And therefore, if you want a manifestation of that, you know, our NATO opinion polls basically turned overnight. Used to be 50 against, 20 in favor. Now it's 62% in favor of NATO membership and 16 against. So, you know, this is a reaction and this is a reaction of fear. Are you personally in favor of NATO membership? Oh, yeah. I've been that, you know, Gideon, since 1995. I think we should have joined the same time when we joined the European Union. But I have been in a minority. I, I, I fully admit that. Now I think the train has left the station. I think eventually we will become members of NATO. And as I've said, as far as the application for NATO membership is concerned, it's not a question of days or weeks, but it is a question of months. Unfortunately, of course, our military is completely NATO compatible, more NATO compatible than most NATO member states themselves. Of course, Russia has suggested that that in itself, simply applying for NATO membership might be uh, causus belli. Presumably, I mean, you have to take that reasonably seriously, but it's not going to stop you. Sure thing. We do take it very seriously. You know, Putin has stated basically three aims. One is to take over Ukraine. Two is to push back the frontiers of NATO in Eastern and Central Europe. And three is to prevent Finland and Sweden from joining NATO. And, you know, they have voiced it with four mouths, if you will. One was Putin himself, then Lavrov, then spokeswoman Tsakarova, and then diplomat Beliaev. And they have talked about, you know, military technical ramifications. And we take those very seriously. But fortunately, we do have a very strong and actually large standing army. We didn't cut our military expenditure radically in the post-Cold War era. We have our F-18s. We just got 64 F-35s that we purchased. And uh, we do trainings with NATO. So we feel quite comfortable with our security situation and understand the risks both ways. But I guess a Finn will right now think, OK, where am I safer? the Ukraine line, not in NATO or in NATO. And the Finns will say in NATO, because we never, ever want to be alone again, just like we were in the Winter War. And you think that an application will be within months? Yeah, I do. Because, uh, you know, we do have very clear procedures on this. So right now, the government is preparing a so-called white paper about the security situation. It goes into the Defense Committee and Foreign Affairs Committee of the Parliament. And then What's going to happen after that is that the government, of course, together with the president, takes a stand on this question. So I do think that we are months, not weeks, but months away. That obviously would be part of a redrawing of the Western alliance. I mean, Finland's decision would be very, very significant. What else do you think we should be doing, not just specifically in the Finnish context? Well, I obviously look at things a little bit with a bias towards northeastern Europe and the Baltic Sea region. I think we need to start from the basic premise that this is a long-term situation whereby the security structures of especially Europe have changed fundamentally. And I would argue that we are moving towards a Europe which is completely split into two. On one hand, you have an authoritarian, sometimes dictatorial, but certainly aggressive Russia, which is still a revisionist power where Putin is looking for his legacy his place in history, uh, unification of Russia, and to use uh, an old term, make Russia great again. On the other hand, we have 
an alliance of democracies, some 30 to 35, with varying memberships in the European Union, in NATO. And of course, this is an alliance where, you know, freedom, cooperation and international law stands. So if this is the starting point, I just don't see another option than for Sweden and Finland to join NATO. Yeah. Are you worried that the non-West has been rather less enthusiastic? I mean, we focused so much on... uh transatlantic unity and so on. But if you look at countries like India, Brazil, South Africa, they're not really lining up with this sanctions effort, or even really rhetorically. I think you're absolutely right. And I think you're one of the few international pundits from Europe who are spotting this. One of the big problems we have at the moment is that our discussion, and for understandable reasons, and I say this coming from Finland, is very Eurocentric. It's all about us. And the rest of the world is looking at this and saying, hmm, yes, you know, we understand your grievances, we see what you're doing, but please understand that we are not an intimate part of this conflict. And here we come to the bigger problem of the new world order, And I think the West, whatever that means, needs to understand that the world order set up post-World War II was skewed towards the West and, of course, to a new system in a Cold War. You know, Yalta and the rest of it, the division of powers. You look at all the international institutions that were created in the aftermath of World War II, they all have a nexus of power which reflects the victors of that war. And now we live in a different world. The role of China, the role of the African continent, the role of India, the role of South America. And we need to understand this in in the West. This is not only about Russia and the West, it is about the international order. Maybe we should draw some conclusions here about China, another authoritarian country, another revisionist power, and maybe even about globalization generally, that this dream that we had of an integrated world in which only a very few countries, you know, your North Koreas and so on, Myanmar's were not participants in a rules-based global economy, that that dream is really um, disintegrating and maybe something we're going to have to let go of. I don't think that we are moving towards an era of deglobalization, but probably more an era of regionalization uh, of power. Now, there is, of course, this discourse, and I think very well put in a book by Mark Leonard, about an age of unpeace where the things that we thought that were supposed to bring us together to connect us, like internet, technology, energy, language, trade, they are actually pulling us apart. And I think this is something that we have to watch for, that that the sort of whole line between war and peace has been blurred. Of course, now we have conventional warfare, but the bottom line is that we're moving towards a world which is much more regional, probably you know, much more isolated in its various forms. So certainly the sort of thinking that I've had about, you know, end of history and cooperation will bring us together doesn't hold true at the moment. And this is the new reality that we have to live with in this new great fragmentation. Does it affect your attitude to China? I mean, Finland is a very high tech country, presumably does a lot of tech trade with China and so on. Do you think that's going to be the next thing that comes under pressure? Yeah, it's a really tough one. And remember that probably in my DNA, living next to a great member of Russia, I'm always more for the cooperation rather than isolation. In the Russian case, it didn't work. Now, for China, I think the question is, they have three options. One, they pivot to Russia. Two, they pivot to the West. And three, they sort of hover with neutrality. I think they will hover with neutrality. And this, if I may, gives a little bit 
of a power kick to Europe, because now Europe is able to play a little bit in between the US and China on this, but it's going to be a very careful balance to deal with. So I would certainly not decouple from China. I don't think China can afford that, and I don't think we can afford it either. Remember that the size of the Chinese economy is tenfold that of Russia. The stakes between the West and China are much higher than between the West and Russia. So if it's just a question of cutting Russia out of the system, I mean, how fundamental a change is that? In a way, it's back to where we were pre-89, where there was very, very little contact between Russia and the West. I still remember the impact of hearing Russian spoken on the streets of London by normal-seeming people in the 1990s. And, you know, they became part of our world. Is it a stable status quo, or is it actually in some ways, even a more dangerous situation than the Cold War, because at least during the Cold War, you had a a Soviet bloc and you knew where it ended. You now have a revanchist Russia, which, okay, is struggling in Ukraine, but does seem to really want to overturn the order and to use military means if necessary. Probably more dangerous, actually, than the Cold War. And the reason is that Russia feels very much alone. You see, there are a lot of Western pundits who don't necessarily get the Russian psyche or the Russian DNA, culture and history. And, you know, ever since you're a kid in Russia, you're told a narrative whereby you, Russia, is isolated. You're a great power, but isolated and attacked from all different angles. The Mongols, the Nazis, and now the West. So you always have to protect And Putin is looking for his legacy. He still tries to keep sort of Russia intact. He's looking at things from demographic perspectives and understanding that his chances are very small. So what I think we need to do, again, in trying to think a little bit ahead, is that when this is over, we need to start thinking about a way of bringing Russia back. But that is not going to happen under Putin. And I must admit that this is where sort of idealism meets realism When are we going to get Russia back? I I really don't know. Are we going to force regime change from the outside? No, it's going to have to happen from the inside. But you have to understand that the bear is wounded. The bear feels isolated. The bear feels scared. And that makes me scared as a Finn as well. Do you think, though, that the EU now has a settled view of Russia? Because obviously there was a big division. Germany was much more interested in rapprochement and change through trade and all of that. They've had a revolution in their foreign policy. They're increasing defense spending. But I sort of wonder whether six to nine months down the road, this war's still going on, our economies are suffering, whether the Putin understanders will make a comeback. And there'll be new voices saying, you know what, we need to get back to something closer to normal with Russia. You know, could well be. There's nothing that unites people more than a war, either, you know, for or against. And and I, I really mean it when I say that I've never seen the European Union as united as it is right now. And I've been doing this stuff as an academic civil servant and politician since 1989. But, you know, time will change this. And I think what the European leaders will be facing in the next few weeks and months is, of course, you know, rampant inflation, food prices, energy prices, petrol prices. And then you start looking inward. And yes, the general population might have a lot of solidarity with Ukraine at the moment, but at some stage we all start looking at our own situation. What does this mean for me? So there are going to be two issues that need to be dealt with. One is that political leaders in Europe have to, they simply have to communicate the cost of both war and peace and make people understand that we are paying a high price of this and that price is actually the quality and welfare of our life at the moment. 
The second one is to make sure that when this war is over, we still stay united in the way in which we deal with things. But here we come into the game of interest that different member states have, the different connections that they've had previously with Russia. So it's never going to be as unified as it is at the moment. One of the cliches, though, in Brussels is that Europe moves forward in times of crisis. So if we're to avoid this kind of whiplash in mood that you describe, presumably some of this needs to be baked into institutional change. So what kind of thing, as somebody who spent a lot of time thinking about EU institutions, should happen and do you think plausibly might happen to make sure that the European Union stays together over this? Sure. I guess the nerdy or Brussels bubble thing to do here is, of course, to give two quotes from Jean Monnet, right? I mean, he was the one who talked about that the EU only advances through crisis. And he also was the one who said that nothing is possible without humans, nothing is lasting without institutions. And, you know, I I agree with him on this. Now, the problem is that the EU usually advances in three phases. This is not Monet, this is me. One is crisis, two is chaos, and three is suboptimal solution. Okay, now we actually skipped the chaos part in this particular crisis. But of course, at the end of the day, the solution is going to be suboptimal. But it's always a step forward. And when there's a step forward, it always sticks. So in the financial and euro crisis, European stability mechanism, banking union, etc. And then, of course, in the next stage, we have corona and COVID. What does that mean? It means basically that we take huge steps in the mutualization of debt and big rescue packages. And now we also take big steps in common foreign security and defense policy. One of the things that's really happened is that the transatlantic relationship is back and America's central role in European security has been reasserted. But lurking in the background is the thought that Biden is, he's a Democrat, the the Democrats are doing badly, Trump might win the next election or a Trump-like figure. Is that something we can even factor into our thinking at the moment? Or do we just have to take the situation we're in and, and hope for the best? I think we have to factor it in. And the way in which I would frame it is to say that we, the Europeans, have been naive on two accounts. One is to rely on Russian energy and the other one is to rely permanently on American security. And I think the Trump episode, whether it's going to be a footnote of history or not, we don't know. And we simply have to factor it in. And I think the interesting thing here is that if you look at two elections coming up, right, one is the French presidential election. Emmanuel Macron is going to ride in back into the Elysee because of the war, right? Very clearly. Whereas in the US, it's going to be a completely different narrative, both in the midterm elections and in the presidential elections. It's going to be about inflation. It's going to be about the cost of gas, as they say in the US, at the pump. So, you know, we have to be very careful where this goes. Of course, we as Europeans should be grateful for what the Americans are doing at the moment. I mean, you know, Biden, Blinken, superb work, American intelligence, Bart none. A transatlantic relationship this week, Biden coming to Europe. Great stuff. But is Biden going to be there in a couple of years? Is it going to be a Democrat a couple of years? Or is it going to be a Trump-like figure? We simply don't know. So whatever strategy we do, we have to look at all the different options. That was Alexander Stubb, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for joining me, and please join us again next week. Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. 
Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes! Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 